Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 29 years, we have engaged the public in reflection and dialogue on critical issues of our day from an ethical perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister here at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on beautiful Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis, and I'm the moderator of the forum. It's my pleasure to introduce today's guest speaker. The Reverend Dr. Harvey Cox is Hollis Professor of Divinity at Harvard Divinity School. He began teaching at Harvard in 1965, the same year he published his landmark book, The Secular City, an international bestseller that is recognized today as one of the most influential books in Protestant theology in the 20th century. This summer, at the age of 80, he retired from teaching and his students, some of whom are in our audience today, remember his legendary courses which consistently drew some of the highest enrollment in Harvard's history. A prolific author, his numerous books include, to name only a few, When Jesus Came to Harvard, Common Prayers, Faith, Family, and a Christian's Journey Through the Jewish Year, Fire from Heaven, The Rise of Pentecostal Spirituality and the Reshaping of Religion in the 21st Century. His newest book and the topic of today's presentation is The Future of Faith. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Dr. Harvey Cox. Thank you very much, Tim, for the, uh, for the introduction. It's wonderful to be here in, in this lovely old church and at this historic distinguished forum where I follow people like uh, Isaac Bashevis Singer and Ailey Wiesel, Desmond Tutu, George McGovern, Salman Rushdie, and a whole host of others. It's a great, great honor to be here. Yeah, I'm very happy to be in Minneapolis I flew out here, and given the attention pilots seem to lavish on their, <coughs> <coughs> on their laptops, I thought it might be Bismarck or somewhere like that, but it's, it, it turns out to be Minneapolis, and I'm very happy and proud uh, to be here and to see all of you. Um, I want to speak uh, rather briefly, just for 20 or 25 minutes, and sketch a little bit about uh, the book that, uh, that Tim referred to, The Future of Faith, uh, because I really look forward to the period in which you can ask your questions or voice your criticisms, and we can have a back and forth uh, among us here and for the, for the instruction and entertainment of those in the radio audience uh, who are listening. Uh, there are three main points in The Future of Faith, which you'll pick out when you look at it. I simply ask myself, what can we say about the future of faith, the future of religion, of Christianity in particular, as we look down the long corridor of the 21st century? And first of all, I have to warn you, be very, very careful of anybody who makes predictions about anything, stock market or religion, and especially beware of me, I firmly predicted that the Red Sox would win the pennant and the World Series. <laughs> ah, thank you, thank you. It's always, as is always next year, and uh, for another Red Sox uh, uh, World Series victory, I think it is a really long corridor down that 21st century, but we're used to waiting in Boston for these kinds of, these kinds of things. The three main uh, theses of this book are as follows. First of all, Despite all the predictions which were being made all around me and all around many of you here, when I first started my teaching, which was half a century ago now, predictions that religion was in a state of decline and decay, uh, marginalization, that the rise of technology and education and literacy and all of that would, would, would make uh, religion a, an insignificant factor in human life. It would certainly no longer have any influence in the public sphere. It would certainly not have any power to shape cultures anywhere. It might be preserved in small family enclaves or in, in old 
wives' tales and, and so on. But that, that was pretty much the picture that was being painted. That wasn't so long ago. Well, whatever else happened, that prediction is one of the most uh, mistaken ones uh, on record. That did not happen in the past five decades. Rather, what happened was the rather unexpected uh, global resurgence of religion in almost all of the religious traditions of the world, all around the globe. I quickly add, for bane or for blessing, because if you have studied religion as long as I have, which is pretty long now, you'll know that when there is a religious revival or renaissance, it's good news and it can also be bad news because religion can inspire compassion and tenderness, solidarity with those who are in pain. Uh, religion can also inspire hatred, vitriol, xenophobia. As one of my friends puts it, uh, there are people who are willing to die for the faith and there are people who are willing to kill for the faith. So we're handling a very potent force here. Uh, and it's going to be around for a while. That's the first major thesis. And those of us who are practicing Christians, as I am, or practicing in some other, or taking seriously some other tradition, will be living in a, in a time in which the new sorting out of these various religious uh, traditions, how they relate to each other, how they relate to the common human future will be the task uh, that, that, that we have. That's the first point. <clears throat> uh, the second point in the book is that one of the reasons why uh, the, the fundamental mistake was made by so many uh, knowledgeable people uh, half a century ago about the decline and disappearance and marginalization of religion was uh, two things. First, overall, overestimating uh, the benefits of what was hailed as the modern age or modernity, which was, it was alleged when I was a youth, uh, was going to solve just about everything. Uh, technology, democracy, literacy, science, was going to lay to rest the animosities, maybe even the diseases, and we were going to move into a really brave and wonderful uh, new world uh, called the modern world. Well, that didn't happen either, as the sad, sad history of the 20th century, perhaps the most violent uh, century on human record, uh, we can look back on now. That did not happen, alas. Also, I think those uh, prognosticators did not foresee or weren't aware of the ability, the capability of religions to transform themselves to draw on their inner substance, their core convictions, but still adjust to changes in the world, which they have done over many, many centuries and indeed many millennia. Uh, religions have an uncanny capacity to do this, and we're witnessing that uh, right now. So the second point of, my, uh, of the book is, is this one, that we are now witnessing not just the, the the renaissance of religious traditions, but a fundamental change in the nature of religiousness, what I call religiousness, what it means to be a religious person, and indeed what it means to be a Christian religious person in particular. Now what I mean by that is that when I look at Christianity or Judaism or Hinduism or Islam or Buddhism and my field increasingly has been uh, comparative religion uh, because I think we, we, we learn a lot that can help us in our own traditions as we know these other traditions. As I look around, I see changes that are similar in each of the major religious traditions. I just want to mention a few, and we may come back to them when you want to put your questions or your criticisms. The first is what I call the experiential turn. More and more people now seem to be interested in a direct encounter with God, with the spirit, with the divine, with the sacred. Something experiential, something they can put their teeth in, something they can touch. Uh, and are less and less willing simply to accept religious teachings on the authority of someone else. Because it says so in a book, 
or because a bishop or a pastor or a, an imam or someone else says it. So if you look around this turn toward experience, which also to some extent means a turn away from, away from an emphasis on doctrine and dogma or an emphasis on hierarchy and organization, it's a shift, and I, and I see it everywhere in all of the traditions that I've just made. It's amazing how global this whole underlying change in the nature of religiousness uh, is, uh, the experiential turn. Uh, think of one example, for example, in, in Christianity, in our own, in my own tradition, the fastest growing wing of Christianity today is what is called the Pentecostal Charismatic Movement, growing especially rapidly in Latin America, in Asia, in Africa, even in China, in mainland China. And this is, a, this is an expression of Christianity in which the direct experience of the spirit, uh, often expressed in a very uh, uh, open and uh, explicit way, with movement, with dancing, with shouting, uh, is, is the mode of, of worship. Healing is a very important part too. Uh, that's uh, growing very rapidly. Uh, there are said to be now about two, about two billion Christians in the world, I think it, uh, demographers tell us, of whom about half, about one billion, are uh, Roman Catholics. And the other half are now getting to be more or less evenly divided uh, between the growing Pentecostal charismatic movement and all the rest of us uh, garden variety Presbyterians and Baptists and, and Lutherans, and, and I guess especially Lutherans up in this part of the world, uh, uh, we, we share our, uh, w with, with, the, with the Pentecostal movement. I can say more about that if you'd like later. I wrote a whole book, which I think Tim mentioned, it's called Fire from Heaven, about the uh, Pentecostal movement which I think in many ways gets a bad press and is misunderstood by a lot of mainline Christians, Catholics and Protestants, and which uh, I was trying to uh, under understand myself a little bit better. Uh, the other uh, change in the nature of religiousness, I'm still on this second uh, point here, is what I call the, the, the movement from a high wall conception of the relationship between religious traditions and a more porous, open relationship between, let's say, Christianity and even Hinduism or Hinduism and Islam or Christianity and Buddhism or Judaism. Uh, the, the, the porousness is beginning to become evident wherever one, almost wherever one, one looks. Uh, the, uh, someone told me about, a, uh, uh, somebody he was talking to the other day, interviewing, uh, was a Roman Catholic woman who went to mass uh, every week, but also uh, went to, loved to go to a, a black church and sing, and, and sing uh, gospel songs. She went to a yoga class on Friday afternoons and she had a book by the Dalai Lama on her book table next to her bed. She's doing what some people call building a repertory. <laughs> that is, thinking of these various traditions not as closed, encased, insular, but as interacting with each other, as indeed they have throughout all of the ages. What would Christianity be without its interaction with uh, Judaism? What would Buddhism be without its interaction with Hinduism? All the rest, or Islam indeed. There's been all this interaction, and we've often been told, wrongly, uh, that these are all uh, isolated traditions in which we shouldn't be very, we ought to be very careful about what we do with each other or borrowing from each other. Uh, I uh, sometimes attend a, a synagogue in, in Boston, and I've noticed that the, the uh, rabbi there has, has introduced into the worship there at the synagogue of what are quite, open, quite evidently um, uh, Buddhist elements. So for example, when they say a shalom greeting, 
Uh, he tells them, he doesn't want to say we're going to say om, that would be a little too much, perhaps. <laughs> he says, now join me and we're going to say shalom. <laughs> Hold that om out. Well, you don't have to be uh, uh, a PhD in religion to know that that's something of a borrowing. And this is going on across the board. Uh, and I think, it's, I think it's a good sign. Also, uh, another major change that I see uh, in the nature of religiousness is that the focus moving from preparation for some other world, although that's not completely forgotten, to how one lives one's life in this world, how one makes it better, how one moves it, in Jesus' terms, towards something like a kingdom of healing and justice and reconciliation, a kingdom of God. That's a whole changing focus, and I could document its, its, uh, its, its analogy uh, in the other traditions as well. Now, finally, the third point in the book, and I want to make this very briefly, is I think because of the uh, changing nature of what it means to be religious, what it means to be Christian in particular, uh, what we call fundamentalism is declining and will continue to decline and it will not be a major player in the religious scene uh, very much longer, although it may, the death may take a very long time. Uh, now, when I talk about fundamentalism, I, I use the term, which was originally an American Protestant term, uh, the fundamentals, which were cobbled together by a, a group of ultra-conservative American Protestants back in 1910. They had a list of non-negotiable beliefs that you simply had to subscribe to if you were going to be, uh, call, call yourself uh, a Christian. Uh, and the keystone cornerstone of all of those beliefs that was, of course, the uh, inerrancy of every syllable in the Bible, whether it had to do with paleontology or cosmology or history or whatever, the, the uh, uh, verbal inerrancy uh, of scripture. That's really what fundamentalism means. However, the term was then taken and applied sometimes a little bit too broadly to movements in other religions. For example, the, the uh, Jewish settlers on the West Bank, uh, who are one of the major obstacles to peace in the Middle East now, who claim that the Bible, and indeed it's the uh, book of uh, Joshua, tells them that they should be conquering and settling all of the land which God gave their forefathers, and, they aren't, uh, and they're insisting on the textual proof of this. Uh, the Islamic movements, uh, which uh, the so-called uh, uh, Muslim fundamentalist movements are very badly misnamed. Uh, nonetheless, uh, they are also, I am claiming here, with, on good evidence, I think, in decline. And we have to be aware of that. That our major, the major opposition, for example, in Afghanistan nowadays, we know from those who are on the spot, and you have a speaker coming in this uh, series, I think, uh, uh, on Afghanistan. The major uh, opposition there, the insurgents, are not religiously motivated. They're motivated by a deep distrust of foreigners, occupiers in their own land, and have managed to get rid of all these occupiers and foreigners as far back as the Persians and then the British and then the Russians. And uh, here we are uh, walking into the same trap and deceiving ourselves at times by thinking that we're, we're fighting people who are basically motivated by their religion. Most of them are not. Most of them are tribalists or nationalists, and we shouldn't make that uh, kind of confusion. So there are the major points of the book. Uh, boy, oh boy, why did it take me so long to write that book when I could so, and I said it in, 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 in 23 minutes. Um, I should have had a stenographer, uh, perhaps, writing it all down. Uh, uh, but that's it. Uh, Christianity, I think, is now uh, moving into one of the most interesting exciting phases in its 2,000-year history. Uh, a couple things have contributed to that. One very basic one is that Christianity is no longer a Western religion. Somewhere around 1951 or 52, 
the majority of Christians in the world began to be those in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. So most of the Christians in the world don't look very much like us. They're, they're, of, uh, they're a darker color, and most of them are not uh, uh, at all prosperous. The whole nature, the whole com complexion of Christianity is changing. And uh, what, they're what we're discovering as we watch and monitor this new emerging Christianity in the rest of the world is how central the figure of Jesus is, how utterly central, and how marginal the Western doctrinal development is. This is something that happened in the Western church and never really happened with that kind of uh, impact in the Asian or African or Indian or Latin American church. So the movement that I've talked about here, the movement away from a, a, a focus on, on doctrine toward a focus on experience, and especially experience with reference to the life, death, resurrection, and kingdom of God uh, that Jesus represents, is what is central all in, in these other expressions of Christianity all around the world. Uh, the other thing that ha has happened, and this has happened more or less in the scholarly realm, but it's beginning to find its way uh, out into the pews and into the uh, awareness of many, many lay Christians, is, all, is what we've discovered about early Christianity from these sensational finds of documents and texts like at Nag Hammadi in Egypt just a, a few years ago. What we discover is that Christianity in its early decades was enormously variegated. There were all kinds of different ways of organizing congregations. There were different theologies. There was not a common creed for 300 years. There certainly wasn't any hierarchy. There were, there were, variety was blooming. And it wasn't until Constantine came along in the early 300s and decided to pull everything together, impose a creed, uh, and, and make sure those who didn't subscribe to it were cast out into the darkness. It wasn't then until that centralization uh, and imperial centralization occurred. And we've, we're still suffering. We're still suffering from that very uh, uh, negative turn, but we don't have to. We now know that the earliest and most vigorous period of Christianity was one in which there were a thousand flowers uh, blooming. So there you have it, uh, very rapidly stated. Uh, uh, religion will be with us one way or another uh, for as long as we'll be around, as long as human beings have to cope with the great mystery, where we came from, where we're going, what we're doing, as long as there is a vision of a possible different world, what Martin Luther King called the beloved community, in which healing and equality and peace, tenderness would reign. As long as that vision is still there, uh, will, religion will continue, religions will continue. The, but the under, underlying nature of what it means to be religious is changing and will continue to change. Still anchored to that core, in the case of Christianity, to, the, to uh, Jesus Christ, uh, still anchored to that core, but flowering in, in all kinds of different directions. Uh, uh, and uh, that will continue as well. Uh, but that uh, what we call fundamentalism is on the way out, not as fast as I would like to see it uh, leave, but uh, there, it, I think it is declining. It is internally fractious. People fight with each other over very minor points. It uh, has a very hard time coping with the kind of pluralism of religious and, and uh, uh, ideological worldviews that we have to cope with now uh, every day. And so I think its, uh, its sun is setting. So there you have it, uh, friends. Thank you very much for coming out here to Westminster Presbyterian Church. I'm delighted to be here, and I look forward to your questions. And by the way, if you want to voice a refutation you don't have to disguise it as a question. Just, uh, <laughs> just make it a, 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 a rebuttal. And I, 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 I really love rebuttals. I've spent my life dealing with them with my students, so I really like that. So uh, let them fly. Thank you.
Thank you, Harvey Cox. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, broadcast live from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, Senior Minister at the Westminster Presbyterian Church and moderator of the forum. Our speaker today is theologian and author Harvey Cox. While the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience at Westminster, I'd like to invite you to join us for our next forum in two weeks on Thursday, November 19th, when activist and entrepreneur Sarah Chase will offer an in-depth look inside Afghanistan. Further information is available online at westminstertownhallforum.org. That's one word, westminstertownhallforum.org. And now, Harvey Cox, if you would return to the pulpit, I'll present questions from our audience. Professor Cox, in your book you describe and name three great ages of religion. And I wonder if you might uh, apply those, name those and discuss them briefly here, but apply them to other faith traditions as well as Christianity. I make a distinction in the future of faith between belief and faith. I think it's a very important distinction to make. Belief uh, is related to the word assentia, giving assent to, subscribing to. Faith is related to fides, faithfulness, loyalty. Belief has to do with uh, uh, one's attitude toward ideas, doctrines, and it's come in the English language to mean something you're not really quite sure of. You say, well, I don't know whether that's, going to, that's true or not, but I, I believe it may be. Whereas faith is something very central, very primal. It has to do with the direction of your life, that to which you are ultimately loyal, your sense of uh, direction. So I make that distinction. And uh, when I look back over Christian history, I would say, uh, uh, that for the first three centuries that I just referred to, Christianity was living in what I would call an age of faith. Being a Christian meant being a follower of Jesus. It meant being part of his people. It meant working and praying for the coming of his kingdom of shalom. That's what it was about. Until the imposition of Constantinian, the Constantinian form of Christianity, which didn't catch everybody. There were a lot of people who escaped that net, by the way. Thank heavens there were many of them throughout, throughout the Constantinian period, which went on for centuries. I call that the age of belief, because that's the period in which being a Christian meant subscribing to a creed. That's what Constantine did to Christianity. And in my view, very damaging. Here's the creed. His own court theologian wrote it. He didn't know very much about theology. He admitted he didn't. But his own court theologian wrote this creed. Everybody had to subscribe to it. And the few bishops at the council where it was adopted, his, at his summer palace in Nicaea, where he wined and dined, the bishops, the ones who wouldn't sign on the dotted line were simply sent out into the hinterlands, maybe something like North Dakota. <laughs> no offense. No offense. No. I, I guess we're, we're reaching North Dakota with this. I understand it's lovely in North Dakota. <laughs> now, uh, so this, this period of um, what I call the age of belief, uh, we, we, didn't, we had a hard time getting through that. There was creed after creed after creed. When I was in seminary, we had whole books of these, one creed displacing another creed, another creed coming in, creeds fighting each other, people being killed and burned because they didn't subscribe to this creed or that creed rather than. I think we're now coming into a period which I boldly call the age of the spirit in which th these, these definitions of what it means to be a Christian are passing away. Not gone yet, surely, but are passing away. And we're beginning to, to understand that what, what links us to each other, both as Christians and with people of faith in other uh, religious traditions, is something like what we Christians call the spirit. 
the reconciling spirit, the healing spirit, the unifying spirit, the Holy Spirit. That's what we call it. Now that's a pretty, I know that's a fairly daring thing. And I don't want to uh, have that confused with some kind of new age uh, uh, definition of, uh, uh, but uh, I, I think we are entering a very radical new stage in Christianity. And I see this, an analogy to this in, for example, Judaism, in, in, in Islam, certainly in Buddhism. I have uh, my, my next book, which will be coming out in English, it's already finished, is a dialogue with a Buddhist scholar named Daisuke Ikeda. We had a, a transoceanic dialogue. I would say something and he would say something. I wonder what you can do with the electronic media nowadays. Back and forth, and we collected this dialogue, and it's being published in a, in a, in a, in a book, uh, Christian Buddhist Dialogue. I was amazed at the similar trends in Japanese Buddhism, away from priestly hierarchies, away from emphasis on Buddhist doctrines, into what, would it, what does it mean to live out compassion, which is the central element in Buddhism, in the world, with your neighbor, in the political and economic structures of the world. Uh, some people are beginning to call it uh, Buddhist humanism. That may be a good term. Uh, 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 but it's 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 the it's the it's the move, which has its um, its its analogy in what I've just described in Christianity as well. People of various faiths don't believe the same things. They follow what they feel are different truths from other religious traditions. But is there a common currency to faith? Yeah, you know, I think the common currency is that we all need that central, primal, underlying sense of direction, of value, of meaning, what my great teacher Paul Tillich called one's ultimate concern. Those who don't have that are really not human. If you don't have a sense of what, is mo what would you give your life for? What, would you, uh, what, what, what keeps you going in the roughest times? Uh, we all have something like that. So we have something like a, a capacity for faith. Then we have different ways of formulating what that faith is, what is the object of that faith, the great mystery that we can never really know fully, we can never really name completely. We realize that our symbols for, for it are broken, although we have to use them, we have to voice them. Uh, nonetheless, we have to be careful not to confuse our ideas of that great encompassing uh, mystery with, uh, with, with God, with the, with the divine, the sacred itself. See, I think what, what people are looking for now is how to be in touch with that sacred, the sacred, without all of the packaging and scaffolding uh, within which it has been traditionally delivered to us. That's the quest that we all seem to have, and I, I think it's uh, universal. So you agree with those neuroscientists who claim that people are hardwired for religion? You know, I don't know what this hardwiring means, uh, but I, 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 suppose, I suppose so, yes. I have a, a, a colleague at, at Harvard who, who works precisely on this kind of brain, brain analysis and thinks there is this kind of uh, capacity for or even need for this kind of sense of direction and meaning and value uh, and that it emerges on an evolutionary scale as the human emerges. It is co-extent co co with the emergence of what it is to be human, is to be a, let's say, a, a faith-capable creature, uh, one who can imagine a different future one who lives by narratives and stories, and one who needs this kind of uh, uh, ultimate direction or concern. Yeah, I think it's there. In light of your description of the current age of the spirit, particularly about Christianity, any comments about the direction of Roman Catholicism, particularly under the current pope? And we have five questions by my count about the pope's overture to the Anglicans. <laughs> comments? 
<clears throat> I think we see uh, what I describe as the ch change in the nature of religiousness being played out in a very dramatic way in this oldest and most venerable of Christian churches, the Roman Catholic uh, Church. Um, for example, when the history of 20th century Christianity is written, I think uh, uh, 20th century Catholicism is written, I think the, some of the major figures are going to be uh, Pope, uh, Pope John XXIII, who called the Second Vatican Council and really asked the leaders of the entire church around the world to make the changes in the church which would make it possible to voice the gospel in a credible way given the changes that he saw were going on as a very wise old man. Another figure that will be who will be remembered, I think, is already is a significant one, is Thomas Merton. Thomas Merton, the great Roman Catholic Benedictine Trappist contemplative and writer who you may recall died in a Buddhist monastery in Thailand where he was praying and meditating with the Buddhist monks and who kept telling us in his final works that uh, when you go deep into the spiritual well at the heart of any of Christianity or Buddhism, then the waters begin to flow together. He was convinced of that. The other one I have to say, well, I think two more, talking about the Catholic Church. One is Dorothy Day, founder of the Catholic Worker Movement, who for, of all the people in the 20th century, perhaps lived uh, a more of a Christ-like existence, living down the Lower East Side in New York with the hungry and the homeless uh, and the, the unemployed and simply being there with them, uh, uh, sheltering them, listening to them, feeding them, inspiring them. And the other, of course, is Archbishop Romero, the, uh, perhaps the single emblematic figure of liberation theology, who started as a very, very conservative, ultra-conservative Catholic prelate. And because of the suffering and of his people in El Salvador, led the way toward re a new understanding of Catholic Christianity's liberative core and where uh, and what 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 standing on the side what he called what they called the preferential option for the poor for those who have been left out and the losers uh, in life which I still think is the most important of all the theological tendencies uh, of the 20th uh, of the 20th century uh, whether Catholic or non-Catholic now, just a word or two about, um, about Pope uh, Benedict. Um, uh, I think Benedict really has the idea that he needs to uh, circle the wagons and, uh, and make the Catholic Church uh, something which is defendable and clear, uh, and not uh, suffering any kind of uh, losses around the edges. But you have to remember that, that Benedict came into the, his role as the Pope with a very serious series of crises on his hand. When he looked around from his palace there on the Tiber at the Catholic Church around the world, what did he see? He looked at Europe and virtually gave up on it. He said, Europe is gone in secularization, not much that can be done. He looked at... Uh, uh, South America, where he saw a hemorrhaging of, of Roman Catholics into evangelical Protestant and Pentecostal churches, and the ones who were staying in the Catholic Church were embracing liberation theology, something he wasn't too fond of either. So that continent didn't look too well. He looked at America and saw Catholics organizing lay groups and demanding some kind of voice in, in their church here. That wasn't something that he... Uh, could stomach too easily. So looking all around the world, it didn't look like a particularly uh, uh, promising future uh, for the Catholic Church. He had to make a decision, and the decision he apparently has made, which I wish he had not, however, is a kind of circling of the wagons and a clamping down and, 
and also apparently an effort, uh, an effort to rally into the Catholic Church elements in other churches who uh, would agree with this need or this tactic, this, this, uh, this uh, tactic of uh, circling the Christian wagons against all of the antagonists. And I think that probably had to do with the invitation to disgruntled uh, uh, Anglicans uh, to uh, come in to a, a kind of a side door into the Catholic Church. I don't think very many will do that. Even suppose a million do. I mean, when, you're, when, when Benedict is heading a church that has a billion people, a million doesn't even amount to, I don't know, was it one-tenth of one-hundredth of one percent, something like that. It's not very much. Uh, so it's a signal, maybe it's a signal also uh, from, from Pope Benedict to those within his own church that he's going to hang tough and isn't going to put up with uh, any kind of uh, softening of the line. Now, I think that uh, that tactic is self-defeating and that we will see major changes in the Catholic Church and that it could well be that those few Anglicans who do decide to come in, well, I, I thought, why, why not open the door to Southern Baptists? <laughs> why not Missouri Synod Lutherans while you're at it? Let's get, get them all together there. But remember, the, the, the priests uh, who will, and bishops from the Anglican Church who will come in are married and will continue to be married. Uh, and will therefore introduce the possibility into the Catholic Church of a married priesthood, which a lot of people have been waiting around for for a very long time. Uh, so it, it, it may have repercussions that were not anticipated, but let us wait and see. A number of our questioners in the audience raise issues around fundamentalism. Let's begin with a question about what is the most essential similarity that the fundamentalists of all religion share with each other? Yeah, well, here's, it's what might be called a family resemblance. All these movements, first of all, reach back into their own tradition and very, very selectively retrieve some element. It's a scripture, it's a particular ritual, it's a particular period in history. They retrieve that very selectively bring it to the present and deploy it in some kind of current argument, struggle, or conflict. They all have that. So for the Protestant uh, fundamentalists, it was uh, the, what they believe was the, a society in which the inerrant uh, scripture reigned uh, before uh, the kind of changes that they deplored. Uh, uh, Ultra-conservative Catholics are hankering after the return of the Latin Mass. Why? Because the Latin Mass is unchanging. Latin is a dead language. Therefore, it doesn't change from year to year. There it is. It's a beautiful language, uh, but it doesn't change. The, the, the changelessness uh, is, uh, is what is, is uh, sought here. For, for Muslims, excuse me, uh, the, the most radical kind of Islamists, talk about this period right after the death of the prophet called the period of the rightly guided caliphs, the first four or five caliphs, after which they thought things really went downhill, everything got divided and acrimonious. How can we reinstate this, uh, this caliphate uh, again in the modern world to end our divisions among ourselves? You have to remember that the major disputes by far uh, within Islam, among Muslims, is with each other. We're reminded of that every day as Sunnis and Shiites continue to, to throttle and kill each other. Yeah, it's only secondarily uh, against uh, uh, those on, on the outside, the West or anything else, only very secondarily. It continues to be an internal battle and especially sparked by the, uh, by the coming of a kind of an Islamic equivalent of fundamentalism. The other thing they have in common, all of them, they all fight a war on two fronts. One front is against 
what they see going on in the world around them, which they see deteriorating, going downhill. The other, however, is against their fellow Christians or Jews or Muslims who they see as betraying the faith. Modernists, liberals, equivocators, all the rest, and who have to be uh, uh, fought tooth and nail uh, so that the, the, for example, the original Protestant fundamentalists in, the, in America directed their fire mainly against uh, other Christians, in fact, against other Protestant Christians. By the way, they were also very, very critical, dismissive of the Pentecostals throughout the early history of, 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 of American fundamentalism. They thought the Pentecostals were really a terrible threat. Why? Because the Pente Pentecostals talked about this direct experience of God, unmediated, coming right in, into your heart. Whereas the fundamentalists insisted that God can only speak through this inerrant uh, uh, scriptural word. Can't, can't, well, uh, Pentecostals seemed to be getting it wholesale. They wanted to have, make sure it was <laughs> retail. And, I, I, and when doing my book on Pentecostalism, I saw one, uh, one article by a, is a Presbyterian fundamentalist, by the way, there were some in, in those days, <laughs> who referred to the Pentecostals as the last vomit of Satan. I've often thought, this, this is, people really knew how to talk to each other in those days. In, in, our, in our soft, interfaith, ecumenical, ironic, uh, uh, ironical age, we're, uh, but they used to really uh, pull out the big guns. So you can see there wasn't any, um, any patience with the Pentecostals either. No, there are really strong similarities across the, across the board among these movements, but I think they're all, they're all in their own way in decline and uh, we will look back on them as an interruption in a far more basic tidal change in what it means to be a religious person or a Christian. Several questions about what you see as evidence that fundamentalism is on the decline in the various religious traditions. And by the way, is it not also true that a shared char characteristics of the fundamentalists in various religions is their view of women? Yes, I'm glad you, I'm glad you it, it sure is. Isn't, isn't that interesting that in all of these movements that I've ticked off here, uh, uh, suspicion of, even at points, hostility toward women, and especially women in positions of leadership, uh, it seems to be a common, a common characteristic. That's true. And that, this is why I think the increasing presence of women in leadership positions in churches, synagogues, mosques, uh, around the world is one of the, one of the, uh, one of the reasons why at least that element of the fundamentalist mentality is declining. We have about 400 uh, Muslim students at our university now. By latest count, we don't take a religious census, but I, I think that's the estimate. And they have a prayer service every Friday. I attend it sometimes with some of my students. And they always insist that the women Muslim students should lead the prayers along with the men. And we find that some recent arrivals from Saudi Arabia, uh, students studying, uh, are a little thrown by this at first. They have never seen this in their lives. Uh, but they, they do adjust to it, and we hope that um, uh, learn something from it. Also, by the way, Sufis, Sunnis, Shias, they all worship together. Uh, in this Friday uh, prayer service. There's that. But what about this uh, evidence of decline? Um, well, I, I mentioned something recently about the Taliban. We have to be very careful in talking about the Taliban. That's a word which, is referred, which refers to a wide variety of different groups in Afghanistan. It simply means students. Talibani means students. And although a small group of them are motivated by a, a radical kind of Islamist jihadi ideology. The vast majority are not. And we have made some very serious mistakes, I think, uh, in dealing with the Afghans by attributing so much of their hostility toward outsiders, uh, foreigners, and others, uh, especially uh, 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 occupying uh, armies, 
uh, to a religious motivation when it's really not. I said something about that earlier today. Uh, but the most recent reports from, from Afghanistan, and you'll hear them if you, if you come, I'm sure, to this uh, lecture next time, is that the, the, the group within the Taliban motiva motivated by uh, jihadist ideology is declining and is viewed more and more by Afghans as really not trustworthy. These people are capable of killing, but they don't seem to be capable of providing jobs or employment or health care. So they're less and less trusted by the general populace. Although the other branches of it, which are more concerned with expelling uh, foreigners and outsiders and uh, military occupiers, are, still have a good deal of confidence. And also, uh, the, the people understand them to be at least honest, or many of them perceive their, their own government to be uh, incompetent and corrupt. Uh, there's a, a new book, by the way, by a woman named uh, Dr. Audrey Cronin, C-R-O-N-I-N. She teaches at the National War College, a book called How Terrorism Ends, How Terrorism Ends. And she writes, Al-Qaeda is in the process of imploding. That is not necessarily the end, but the trends are in that direction. Uh, another bit of evidence is why is it the, uh, the, let's call them fundamentalist clerics in charge, alas, uh, in Iran, have taken to beating up and torturing, arresting and killing their own young people unless they feel a little shaky, unless they feel that uh, they don't have the confidence of, uh, of the people. Uh, wherever one looks, the Christian coalition, pretty much in, in shambles now. Does anybody here remember the moral majority, that, that, that powerful force that Jerry Falwell, well, uh, may he rest in peace? I'm going to cut in right there and end on that cheerful note. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Professor Harvey Cox, for your visit here.